You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from New York City. And I'm joined today by my usual co-host, Prashant Parmesran, who's back this week. How's it going, Prashant? Good. How are you doing, Ankit? Good to have you back. So, uh, Prashant, it's been a hell of a couple weeks in South Asia, so um, we're going to be revisiting this region again on the podcast today. How does that sound? Sounds good. Yeah, so... You know, going back to the Uri attacks, which we discussed um, a couple episodes ago, um, clearly things have somewhat escalated. Um, Earlier uh, last week on a Thursday morning, Indians woke up to reports that overnight uh, Indian forces had supposedly carried out a cross-border, or sorry, not cross-border, I should say, cross-line-of-control strike. Uh, That's actually an important distinction when you're talking about India and Pakistan. So essentially... um, Um, Just to recap very quickly, on September 18th, the Indian Army suffered one of its worst um, high casualty attacks in over a decade when militants attacked a compound in Uri just a few miles from the line of control. And um, in the aftermath of that attack, Indian public opinion really went crazy and essentially called on the Modi government to strike back, uh, you know, essentially saying that enough is enough. India can't tolerate these sort of militant attacks. So ultimately, last Thursday, it appeared that something of this kind had happened. And what was really unusual is that India, um, which had actually carried out cross-line-of-control strikes um, earlier in the 2000s, particularly under the previous BJP government of Atal Bihari Vajpayee, um, carried another one of these operations out, crossing the line of control, carrying out surgical strikes. And that were, you know, those words aren't mine. That's what the Indian Director General of Military Operations called the operations. And um, he said they carried out surgical strikes on terror launch pads on the other side of the line of control. Um, Now, what was interesting in the aftermath of this was that, A, India commented very publicly on this operation, which is really unusual. I mean, covert operations are intended to take place, you know, under a shroud of plausible deniability. Usually governments use them as a furtive tool to accomplish objectives without really talking about them. So the fact that Delhi spoke very clearly about it and had a messaging plan ready to go, uh, even going as far as to brief foreign envoys in New Delhi, suggested that this was a highly calculated move. And the second thing that's interesting is actually the reaction from the other side of the line of control, where Pakistan actually denied that any sort of operation had taken place, simply suggesting that there had been some cross-border shelling, but nothing else, Um, you know, nothing out of the ordinary, really. So, Prashant, I guess, you know, let's start our discussion on these surgical strikes, um, which we've also had a lot of coverage at The Diplomats, so readers are interested in getting deeper into Indian Special Forces capabilities and the background behind the strike. There's definitely a lot more on the site. But where I wanted to start our discussion, Prashant, is... You know, I wanted to get your sense of why you think India decided to break with, you know, the long term, uh, the long standing practice of not commenting publicly on covert operations. Why do you think Delhi went public this time? Yeah, so I think uh, the sort of conventional interpretation, the one that's gotten sort of the most traction thus far, is that uh, given the public outrage in India about uh, previous attacks that had been seen, um, including the Uri attacks, the Modi government may have seen an opportunity to not only uh, sort of demonstrate the military utility of such operations, no matter how limited those may be, uh, but also satiate uh, rising domestic demands in India for action, and also in the process perhaps boost the government's legitimacy and and popularity. Um, I think it is important though to note that uh, even if one accepts this interpretation, there were still clear attempts by New Delhi to calibrate its response. Um, Several people, I think you note in your piece as well, if you read the full text of the remarks by the Director General for Military Operations, uh, Ranbir Singh, 
the strike was couched not only in terms of preempting infiltration by terrorists, but the language was quite specific in terms of the targeting, in terms of the fact that mentioning clearly that India did not have any plans to further continue these attacks. And this was in response to specific intelligence that they received about potential attacks. Um, and you can sort of talk about how that's mainly a rhetorical device for to legitimize Indian actions. But I think there was some caution on the part of New Delhi because I think they realized that um, there is a risk to fanning nationalist sentiment uh, domestically in, in Pakistan as well uh, and provoking another nuclear armed power and also exposing what we discussed before, right, which is India's own limited ability uh, to decisively end this sort of tit for tat that goes on between uh, India and Pakistan. Um, and I think, you know, a further point to note is that, you know, what's been really interesting thus far is the ongoing public relations battle between India and Pakistan over what actually happened in the strike. I mean, Pakistan's been taking foreign journalists to parts of the line of control uh, to prove that publicizing, uh, to prove that such attacks, you know, had their own limitations and may have, in fact, never occurred to the degree that New Delhi has been talking about. So, yeah, irrespective of how legitimate the claims are on each side, I think it really proves that there are limits to publicizing these attacks rather than communicating them in a covert way, um, as you indicated. Right. I think, uh, you know, in all of what you just said, I think there's a really interesting nugget there, which is that the military utility of this is turning out to be the less interesting aspect as the signaling utility on both sides. I mean, as you said, New Delhi clearly intended this as, you know, not only a signal to domestic constituencies of the BJP and the ultra-nationalists who are crying out, you know, for one tooth, we'll take the whole jaw, which I believe uh, Ram Madhav actually said, but also, you know, signaling to Pakistan that New Delhi has certain capabilities that it's now willing to use across the LOC. And more more importantly, signaling to the international community. I mean, um, you know, an important detail is also that uh, Indian National Security Advisor Ajit Doval, um, depending, I've seen varying reports to this end, uh, he spoke to Susan Rice. Uh, some reports that he spoke mm -hmm. to her before, after, and I even saw one last night by the Hindustan Times that suggested that they were actually speaking while the operation was going on. So that also suggests that, you know, U.S. policy towards um, India retaliating against these sort of attacks is starting to change as well. Yep, exactly. Um and to, to that end, I mean, I think when we're talking about uh, the utility, either uh, militarily or in terms of politically, uh, what the signaling might be, um, it's interesting to see what the reaction will be from Pakistan uh, in, in, in the coming weeks and perhaps what we're sort of already seeing uh, thus far in terms of rumbling. So I was wondering, you know, what's your take on what we might see from the Pakistani side, uh, either in terms of retaliation or some of the measures in other domains, because uh, as we pointed out before and today as well, uh, these various domains, whether it's military or diplomatic or political, are all kind of linked in some way. Right, right. No, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, yesterday, um, I should specify the date, October 2nd, uh, Sunday night, um, there was actually a similar attack by militants on an Indian um, military base, uh, a combined um, Rashtriya rifles, the 46 Rashtriya rifles and the Border Security Force base in Kashmir's Baramula district, which is actually along the Jhelum River in um, in Kashmir, um, just a little bit closer to Srinagar than uh, Uri is, a little bit further away from the LOC. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I thought immediately in the aftermath of the attack that, look, is this blowback for the strike that Pakistan said never happened? Um, probably not. I mean, it had only been four days. It's very unlikely that, you know, Pakistan was able to infiltrate 
militant proxies across the LOC when Indian forces were on high alert. Um, it's very likely that, you know, these these attackers might have been part of the same batch of infiltrators with Ori. Uh, you know, the big caveat with a lot of this stuff is just that we simply don't know. And, um, and, you know, I mean, I should really, you know, impress this upon our listeners is that India has released one official on the record statement and a lot of what's been reported in the Indian press. Uh, there's a lot of great national security journalists out there in India, um, but unfortunately, there are a lot who also rely on dubious sources. Uh, for example, you know, on September 21st, one outlet had reported that India had already carried out an LOC strike. And I think that report even noted that there were over 200 casualties. I mean, so you'll see a lot of this kind of stuff that just, you know, really muddies the discourse. I mean, Kashmir is already deep in the fog of war and then you have all these reports kind of confusing things i mean immediately in the aftermath of the surgical strike there were also conflicting accounts of you know indian troops crossing the border in a low-flying helicopter like something out of zero dark 30 uh, ignoring the fact that pakistan has advanced radars and there's you know shoulder fired rocket launchers pretty much scattered all across the loc on the pakistani side um but anyways i'm uh, digressing a bit you know to go back to the question of retaliation prashant i think it's interesting i mean the fact that Delhi has let Pakistan just deny this and not really said, you know, we attacked you, here's proof. Uh, I think that's a good move for all sides considered. I mean, if New Delhi were to release proof, which right now, I mean, reading the Indian press, there's a lot of cries to see some sort of evidence that this actually happened to the extent that the DGMO said that it did. I mean, that really puts Pakistan in a bind, right? I mean, Pakistan's doing all it can to take journalists and, you know, save face, essentially. And if the Pakistani military, uh, which really runs the show in Pakistan when it comes to foreign and security policy, as we've discussed several times on this podcast, um, sees, you know, itself embarrassed, uh, humiliated in that way, you know, it might be forced to react. And that's really when you start seeing escalation. And, you know, one thing I should know about this attack that took place in Baramulla, Sunday night is that um, fortunately the casualty count was nowhere close to Uri. I mean, um, I think reports were that one Indian soldier died in mm-hmm. the encounter and the attackers actually managed to escape, if I'm correct. Um, but, you know, it looked like yep. um, if there had been a higher casualty count, I think it would have been seen as a clear tit for tat for the cross border strike and a continuation of the tensions that began with Uri. Um, but for now, it looks as if Pakistan isn't really willing to push this further. Um, and, real, and really, you know, we can't say uh, definitively what the causation was for the Baramula attack. I mean, was this a cell that was receiving clear directions from across the LOC? Was it a cell that decided to activate per, you know, plans that have been put in place long before even the Uri attacks. It's really hard to say. I mean, there's just so much uncertainty here. But for now, the risk of immediate retaliation, uh, or at least a retaliatory spiral, um, doesn't seem that high. Yeah, I think the, the way you put it is is uh, exactly the way I see it as well, which is that um, even as both sides try to respond to the actions of the other side, it's important to at least leave some room for the other side to save face, lest there, you know, there there is a notion by the other side that there is almost a um, no choice but to escalate. And I think India is keen to avoid that, just as much as I think Pakistan is trying to uh, Pakistan is trying to avoid that. But the the threshold is always kind of blurry when you have uh, the difficulty of managing both domestic publics at home and then also the international community abroad. So it's always a tricky thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's also been interesting reports that uh, the geopolitics of cross LOC violence has also changed a bit in the sense that the United States is now more willing to openly talk to India. I mean, there was that incredible readout by the National Security Advisor's phone call. But also, I mean, China, which has made significant investments in Pakistan through the uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, definitely doesn't want this to spiral out of control. I mean, uh, CPEC is going through Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. The worst possible outcome for China there would be for a, you know, a full-on uh, long-term 
long-term skirmish or a war between India and Pakistan. So there's definitely, you know, geopolitical impulses also holding um, New Delhi and Islamabad from a full-on conflict. Right. Um, all right, Prashant. Well, um, we'll no doubt come back to South Asia and uh, do another check-in as these tensions are no doubt slated to continue uh, possibly through the winter. Um, but I wanted to, you know, shift base, uh, shift gears a bit, move to um, Hawaii, where U.S. and ASEAN officials met over the weekend, uh, specifically defense ministers in an informal setting. Um, so you were following this pretty closely, and you actually wrote about it. So can you tell us a bit about the big takeaways out of this meeting? Sure. So I, I think uh, I would summarize the the key takeaways as as being two. Primarily, I think the Obama administration wanted this to be seen in terms of narrative as one more example of its uh, commitment to ASEAN and Southeast Asia within the, the so-called rebalance. Uh, this defense minister's informal meeting idea was, it's the Obama administration's, it was first held in 2014, this is the second one, and it follows the Sunnyland Summit, uh, which we saw earlier this year as well. Um, it's also evidence that Southeast Asia is featuring prominently in the Pentagon's future plans uh, for modernizing the U.S. posture in the Asia-Pacific. Um, I've written about other initiatives like the Southeast Asia Maritime Security Initiative, which focuses on maritime domain awareness as being a case in point. Um, but there are others as well that the Pentagon is, is, is looking, to, uh, looking to do in the next few years. And I think in terms of substance, um, you saw some of that discussion. Uh, in terms of a wide range of issues, uh, maritime security in the South China Sea was there definitely, but also humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, uh, terrorism and, and the Islamic State. Um, so there really were a, a wide range of topics that were discussed. In terms of concrete deliverables, um, I think uh, people were expecting uh, a little too much going in. This was one of the meetings where there was not going to be a you know much-awaited joint statement where everyone would just sort of pick apart and see what the language on the South China Sea might be. So that's one of the reasons why you haven't seen a, a huge stream of reporting coming out. But Carter did announce a few new initiatives, even though he didn't offer a lot of specifics. There's going to be a an exercise on the maritime security side uh, planned for next year uh, that's going to be multilateral. And this is uh, something that builds on what the United States has been trying to do over the past couple of years, which is to increase and increasingly multilateralize some of its bilateral exercises in uh, Southeast Asia. So I think that's something that we can look forward to going into 2017. But I think even as those discussions took place, you saw uh, several lingering concerns as well. Um, it was very difficult uh, for the various defense ministers and Carter himself, in fact, uh, to avoid questions about uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, <laughs> which we've also discussed uh, in this podcast, right. uh, and what the implications are, you know, not only for the alliance, uh, but also for regional uh, security more broadly. So um, there are a number of concerns, and also, you know, timing-wise, uh, this is not the best. I mean, this is, you know, a month out from a U.S. election where uh, the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency has, has not been uh, eliminated. <laughs> and so there, there is some regional uncertainty about um, what that could mean um, for U.S. policy, just because you know, there's a lot of familiarity with Hillary Clinton from her time as Secretary of State, including her visits to Southeast Asia, but not a lot of uh, familiarity with Donald Trump and what he might do in the foreign policy domain. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, just for listeners, um, I know that Duterte is, again, a huge topic. Uh, Prashant and I actually were discussing whether to bring up Duterte in detail on this podcast, since there's been a lot that's gone on since we did our last podcast specifically about the Filipino president. But we're actually going to revisit that after he visits China and after actually the next batch of Philippines public opinion data comes out, since that will hopefully help us have a more informed conversation about where the Philippines' possible pivot away from the pivot is uh, going. Um, But Prashant, I wanted to ask you something. Um, This might be a little bit of a close reading of what went on in Hawaii, but I noticed that, you know, Carter's been talking about this principal security network for a while. I noticed in Hawaii, he um, added principled and inclusive. Was that, you know, a calculated move of political messaging or simply a, uh, you know, just an addition ad hoc? Yeah, I think I think several folks uh, noted that too. I, th- I think there's been a lot of interest um, in that term since he first uh, mentioned it publicly at the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, earlier this year. And I know uh, the reaction to uh, most of us who were there during the Shangri-La Dialogue was, oh, this is very promising because the United States is uh, putting forth a positive vision uh, for the region. But there certainly were some voices, including among Southeast Asian countries, who said, oh, wow, this only contributes uh, to what the Chinese are saying about the United States kind of having its own network uh, of allies and partners and the Ch- and the Chinese having to come up with their own uh, network and whether that might exclude China or a few other countries that might be moving closer to, to the Beijing's orbit. So um, if I were to say if there was any calculated decision to include uh, the word inclusive uh, in that, it might be due to the fact that um, the Obama administration and the Pentagon might want to assuage uh, China and also try to make sure that it's a public diplomacy effort doesn't uh, sort of falter on the notion that Southeast Asian countries will have to choose uh, between the United States and China, which we all know they're they're not willing to do. Right, right. It sort of seems like on the security side, the equivalent of saying, well, China's open to, you know, join the TPP in the future, for example. It's interesting um, yep. that, you know, the messaging is still uh, changing on that front. Um, anyways, Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me today. Uh, like I said, we will be back with more on Duterte for sure, uh, since he's turning out to be one of the big uh, curveball stories to come out of the future of the pivot this year. And we'll hopefully, um, you know, as we come up on the end of Obama's presidency, um, do a couple podcasts also reflecting more broadly on the legacy of the pivot itself um, after the Obama presidency. Uh, for listeners, um, thanks as always for uh, tuning into the show. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps the podcast. And if you're interested in hearing something on this show that you haven't heard yet or you want to hear again, definitely just drop either me or Prashant a note on social media or via email. Thanks a lot for listening.